From LPL Financial, welcome to Market Signals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest LPL Market Signals. Jeff Bookbinder here, your host for this week with my friend and colleague, Quincy Crosby. Uh, Quincy, thanks for joining. It is very windy and very rainy here in Boston. Uh, I hear it's similar down there where you are. Windy and sunny. Cold. Well, that's better. Not the cold part, but at least you got some sun. We have no sun. In fact, this is really strange. Um, my my kids, you know, I've heard about early release day. At school, they had late release day. I've never heard of this before, where the the principal kept the district in school for an extra hour to wait for um, the the winds to die down uh, and and for the commute to be safer. So, how about that one? Uh, that's new to me. Have you ever experienced that before? Like it. You like it. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. All right. Smart move. Smart move, yeah. safety first. All right. So here we'll look at these lovely disclosures. Then we'll move into the agenda for uh, this week. We've got, boy, we got a lot of stock market gains to talk about. Um, so um, new all-time high for the Dow, the S&P 500, as we're recording this on Monday, December 18th uh, at about 2 p.m. Eastern. It is, the S&P is about 1% from an all-time high. So we're close. Got about 40, 45 points or so to go. Uh, but the Dow got there already. Why did the Dow do that? Because of the Fed pivot, which we'll talk about. Um, we're also going to look at commodities this week. So, you know, Quincy, you have a great global perspective. So, um, you know, whenever um, I do this uh, podcast with you, I want to talk about what's going on globally. So certainly we can look at the commodity markets and get some understanding of of what uh, the, the markets are um, pricing in in terms of global growth. Uh, and then the week ahead of, of course, um, the Fed's preferred inflation measure. We talk about it every time that's on the docket. Inflation's become a little bit less important <laughs> because we, we got the pivot. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, I think that's the most important economic data point this week. And then um, the Bank of Japan is certainly the most important thing we're going to get from a central bank this week. Uh, so interested in hearing your thoughts on the, the BOJ, Quincy. So Let's start with our market recap. We didn't do this last week because we just went through the LPL outlook for 2024. As a reminder for those who uh, haven't seen it yet, the LPL market outlook for 2024 is out on LPL.com. Actually, along with our new blog, we have a new blog site on LPL.com, which was migrated over from LPLresearch.com, which is very exciting. It looks a lot better. Uh, so thanks to the folks who um, who did that for us. So um, we're back to kind of our normal agenda, a normal uh, routine. Uh, so this is the um, market performance recap. And you see here, um, you know, the, the seventh straight week for the S&P 500 higher up two and a half percent. The Russell 2000 has gone from a 52-week low to a 52-week high in a very short amount of time. Basically, I think it's around five weeks, five, six weeks, which is about as fast as that ever happens. So um, uh, clearly this market is broadening out. And, uh, you know, it's not just about the Magnificent Seven. Also uh, worth noting, the cyclical sectors did better than the defensives in general. Uh, That is signaling solid economic growth ahead. In fact, I saw a study uh, over the weekend from Goldman Sachs that basically ties the correlation between cyclicals relative to defensives and GDP growth. 
And it's saying 3% right now GDP growth, which of course is, is really strong. We probably won't do that in Q4, but uh, certainly we um, we wouldn't be surprised to see two. So very cyclical and sort of uh, risk-loving type of uh, intramarket performance here. Uh, and, you know, we had gains overseas. We had, um, well, not, not totally across the board, but but certainly in most of the key markets uh, globally. Uh, the dollar's starting to weaken. That makes sense when the Fed is presumed closer to a cut than a lot of these other markets uh, outside the U.S. Bond returns were really strong, up over 2%. We're up 5% year-to-date on the Bar- Bloomberg aggregate bond index. We were at negative returns for bonds not too long ago. So we basically made our year in bonds off of just the last you know, month or so um, with this with this huge rally as rates have come down. Uh, in recognition that the Fed is done. There you see the dollar weakness in the bottom right-hand corner here, down 1.5% on the week. Uh, That certainly helped not only uh, international stocks post gains, but also commodities. Uh, Energy finally bounced. Industrial metals metals were quite strong. um, And um, precious metals solid as well, up between 2 and 5% across all the major commodities. So um, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, so here's the S&P 500. So Quincy, you know, the, um, I mean, the mar- the index is overbought, right? I mean, frankly, most of its components are overbought. You see that in the bottom panel here, um, you know, 40% of the S&P in overbought territory, over 70% above a 20-day high. Um, the RSI of the index is right around 70. That is overbought territory. So I think the question is, um, are we going to drift higher consistent with seasonality, or do you think this market needs to uh, pull back and and maybe over the next month we'll end up lower? Well, you know, I certainly think that markets typically need to consolidate gains, pause, and then get ready for the, you know, the next, next rally. But markets that have a very strong underpinning, such as this market, can defy the need to um to burn off some of that, uh, some of that froth, uh, you know, a strong market it, uh, does defy the same way in an oversold market. Uh, we always say an oversold market is due for a bounce, but if that oversold market has reasons to be oversold, it'll continue. We're seeing this on the other side of the equation, and every time we thought the market was going to pause, it looked as if it was going to pause. Uh, typically, the ten-year yield would inch lower, and then the market will. Get another bounce higher, but it, it will happen. The market does need to pull back, and it will pull back. It's not if, it's when, but it will be just to pull back. Yeah, the fundamentals of this market are still pretty good, so yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would agree with that. If we pull back, we're not going to pull back uh, dramatically. That you have good breadth now, and you have the opportunity for the S and P four ninety three to do well. Right. We've been just talking about those seven stocks all year. Well, here's the chance. And we saw it in small caps. Right. Here's the chance for the rest of the market to start doing some work and maybe can you know lift the uh, the overall index, even if that magnificent seven doesn't do too much. So um, let's turn to the 10 year yield. I and mean, this, of course, is the reason why uh, stocks are rallying. Right. Or at least it's it's tied to the reason why the dovish Fed and falling inflation. Um, we just um, lowered our 10-year yield target for year-end 2024 
it's uh, 375 to 475. You can see on this chart, uh, we're a little under four. Uh, so, you know, there's certainly some downside in our view. I mean, the momentum to the downside has been quite strong. So we wouldn't be surprised if we go a little lower, uh, but the returns from here for bonds are probably going to be a little bit more modest, uh, certainly than we've seen. Uh, you're going to see, um, you know, we probably see some resistance below 375. But if we do get down uh, below 375, then maybe you could look at 3.3 as support. That would be quite a move uh, from 5% not too too long ago. So um, yeah, rates are nearing oversold levels and uh, are probably going to find their footing here uh, fairly soon. So um, let's turn to the Fed. Speaking of rates, uh, so Quincy, we um, we got what everybody called the you know a dovish pivot, and um, you know the dot plots uh, told us three cuts. I think most people see that I've seen forecasts for are looking for four. Uh, the market is pricing and it looks like five next year, uh, maybe even six, right? To get us a little below 4%. Um, you know, what do you think? Is that too aggressive here? Do, do you think three is the right expectation? And and when do you think the cuts start? Well, I think that if you have a so-called soft landing, and it looks as if now uh, the um, for the fourth quarter, we're back above 2% in terms of uh, for the data up until this point. So we've moved up from about 1.2% to go above 2%. It'll be hard to understand why the Fed would need to cut rates, say, in March or April. Uh, I already saw the Fed Fund's futures market uh, pulled back on it on its forecast for a rate cut in March, pulled it back. And the reason for that is there's been some pushback from the Federal Reserve speakers uh, in an orchestrated attempt to get the market to understand that the Fed is not in the mood right now to discuss rate cuts. Uh, that came from the head of the New York Fed, John Williams. It was backed up, interestingly, by Bostic, head of the Atlanta Fed, who tends to be much more dovish than um, the average dove on the uh, Federal Open Market Committee. And then um, Loretta Mester made a case, also spoke to the Financial Times saying, I don't think so. So, you know, this is orchestrated. Uh, it is it is the Fed saying, basically, we want some, quote, unquote, optionality, as they like to say. If they if they have to raise rates, uh, they don't want to. They probably think they don't have to, but it's a just in case. And um, Chairman Powell also said at the press conference early on, actually, this I think it was the second uh, questioner at that press conference. He said, look, I just want to say we're not declaring victory. Uh, we're not declaring victory. Uh, we've done very well. It's moving in the right direction, but we have to make sure that it continues to move in that direction. They don't want any surprises, and they also don't want to repeat what happened in the 70s. And also, you have to argue for Volcker. He rate, uh, you know, cut, raised rates, cut rates, and then later on, he was forced to uh, raise rates again. I think they want to go slow. And I think also they're prepared at this point, Jeff, to say, look, we're not going to be rushing towards 2%. We don't want to damage the economy in order to get to 2% quickly, as long as it is moving in the right direction and that the last mile uh, is moving closer in that direction. In other words, the untangling of the, um, of the, of the super core. 
We'll find out this Friday, we'll get the personal consumption's expenditure index. So the market, by, by the way, uh, in, in this market today is saying, oh, really? We're not really sure we believe you anyway. Uh, you'll wind up having to cut rates. And you know, if something breaks, they're going to provide liquidity. They are going to come in quickly and provide liquidity by cutting rates. There's no doubt about it. But the question is, what else would get them to cut rates? And that may be that at some point, uh, inflation comes down to a level that happens not to be commensurate with where uh, the um, rates are, and then they and then they will cut as well. But that's not going to be in March unless something goes wrong. Yeah, the odds of something breaking have certainly come down with this move lower in the 10-year yield and intermediate rates uh, yeah. along with it. So um, they, they might pull off what many thought was impossible, frankly. Uh, you know, normally the playbook is buy the pause and sell the cuts. In this case, it's possible that, you know, we uh, we don't get a cut until the second half of the year. And, you know, by that time, the market kind of heats up a little bit again. We get through a little economic soft patch, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And then they're, you know, looking at maybe hiking again next year. You know, that wouldn't be our base case, certainly. But, uh, you know, look what happened in the 90s, right? You, you had a soft landing and then you overheated later. We'll, we'll see. Uh, but um, but right now, let's just focus on the fact that the pause is here. The market really likes that. And, um, I, you know, frankly, I wouldn't get too caught up on whether we get a cut in you know, May or or June or maybe in a little bit after that. So, um, and March seems too soon. I agree. So let let's turn to commodities. Uh, so Quincy, the um, the outlook we had a commodity chart where we compared this commodity cycle to the two thousand one to two thousand and eight cycle. That was driven more by by China. Um, you know, this time China's working against the cycle, not for the cycle, <laughs> right? So. Um, you know, this is just the broad Bloomberg Commodity Index, so it includes a lot more than oil. Uh, but it has come down, and it's it, it's now behind uh, its um, its pace from that that prior decade. And frankly, you know, given the growth outlook in China, uh, which I know you'll comment on in a bit here, maybe it goes much lower. Uh, so um, you know, commodities outlook is is not um, unequivocally positive here. Uh, a quick look at at oil. I know you've got some thoughts here, Quincy. We have a little bit of a bounce. You know, I titled this chart starting to get its footing. The um, 65 to 67 kind of range has a lot of support uh, technically. And we just bounced above this, you know, sort of upward sloping trend line uh, to get you know back into the low 70s. I'll, I'll say this, it you know, you know, our bias is oil goes higher. Um, and certainly the geopolitics are pointing in that direction. Seasonality is pointing in that direction as well. It's turning more positive. Uh, but there's a lot of headwinds here, right? I mean, you have U.S. oil production at a record, Quincy. And you have um, a lot of technical resistance, right? Having essentially chopped our way down from you know, 93 to 70, right? Um, it's it's not going to be a straight line up, I think. Uh, in fact, maybe it takes, you know, they say that a lot of these commodities take the elevator down and the escalator up. I think we're in an escalator up situation here with oil. What do you think? Well, you know, the, we, we saw this playbook some months ago 
when oil prices came down quite dramatically on the back of recession fears, when that was very uh, prominent in the headlines. And it didn't matter about cuts in production back then, and uh, the oil prices continue to uh, edge lower. Suddenly, you have that changing, but as you pointed out, the U.S. Uh, frackers are coming in, and we've got we've got record production in the U.S. Um, and but a couple of technicals helped uh, put it kind of a underpinning last week on uh, prices, and that was um, the stockpiles, crude stockpiles in the U.S. were lower than expectations, which is when you want the price to go up. That is that was a good catalyst for the price. To go up. The other thing is, and about, I have to add something about whether or not the market thinks uh, oil prices are going to go up. Take a look at the Saudi market today. That's all oil. That all oil all the time. Um, it's up. It, well, at least it was up earlier um, on their on their cycle. The other thing that is happening, and this is important, and that happens to be the Iranian surrogate. They've got a number of surrogates. They deny it. But nonetheless, the Yemen-based Houthis um, are out there in the Red Sea targeting the tankers. Why this is different now this week, it, the question is, where are the tankers going to go? And therefore, it makes oil more expensive because they're going to have to go around. And that takes longer. Uh, it's more expensive. They burn more uh, oil doing that. Uh, and then there's another question as far as that's concerned. What is the U.S. going to do? This is important because the U.S. clearly doesn't want to be brought into anything that pushes this conflict away from the contained, so-called contained conflict uh, with um, Israel and um, Hamas. It would push the U.S. closer into a really into a, 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 a quagmire with Iran, which Iran may want, actually. But the point is, you see oil prices going up uh, as soon as this became yet another story. The big um, uh, integrated names are, are having their ships go around or not are not going this again. Anytime you disrupt the pattern or the supply of oil, doesn't matter what it is, a hurricane, strike people striking or something like this, prices climb higher. So that's what we see. But the bigger question is, how much more does the U.S. take? Uh, remember, U.S. troops have been targeted. Uh, a couple of our ships were targeted. At some point, the U.S. may just decide they're going to answer back. And if they do, they're going to win. Because if you start sending in U.S. Um, um, support, they're not going in there to just be a cruise line. They're going to go in there to make sure they send a message. The question is, does the U.S. do that? Uh, and if they do, when? How much more does the U.S. take from these um, surrogates for Iran? Of course, I just want to point this out. Iran denies it, uh, but uh, the history dictates that they are the surrogates for uh, Iran. I just want to point out, too, they have gone after Saudi targets as well. And that has placed the Saudis in the line of conflict with them, the Houthis, and also, therefore, Iran. So it gets to be quite complicated. But oil prices climbing higher. And I, I just want to point out the U.S., uh, again, at 13.24 uh, 
a million a billion barrels of billion barrels of oil a day, and the expectations are we are going to come out with about another 550,000 barrels of oil a day um, next year in 2024. There's no stopping. I want to add here to something that I think may be interesting. Folks may remember this. Before it was OPEC plus, as just called OPEC, we were producing so much oil. It was a, almost a change in our in our culture in the U.S. where we were becoming energy independent, completely energy independent. The Saudis did not appreciate this. And what they did was they flooded the market with oil. They just flooded it with oil, thinking that what would happen is the U.S. shell producers would just back out. They would just back out because they, the price point was just not enough for them to, um, to make any money. Well, what it did was it caused chaos in the entire energy industry and the energy complex and prices for a long time. I only mention this because there are many who believe that the Saudis could pull something like that again. Our view is that they probably won't because of the chaos it would, it, that would ensue. Uh, but that said, they want to come out and have a unified view from OPEC Plus in saying we are going to cut production. It's not going to be voluntary. It is going to be solid. And that is what they've been lobbying for. They're working on it. And we'll see if they actually um, can actually uh, forge an, such an agreement. Yeah, th we've been saying all along that, um, well, not all along, but certainly since October 7th, that the key to oil prices is whether the conflict um, the, the, between Israel and Hamas gets wider. And if you potentially disrupt oil production coming out of Iran, uh, then you have a formula for higher oil. So that's what we'll have to continue to watch. Uh, this chart looks a little better. This is copper. Uh, you know, we talk about Dr. Copper because it's a, a global barometer of, of economic growth. So, you know, maybe you could read this uh, to mean that the economic growth outlook in China is is bottoming, right? Maybe expectations have bottomed. I mean, the economy is not accelerating, but maybe the expectations are um troughing what do you think quincy is well, manufacturing uh, industrial production surprised to the upside i mean that is the official data that came out and that whenever you see that you'll see uh some of the industrial metals also uh, move higher but the big expectation is and again hope springs eternal and that is that the authorities at their so-called third plenum that is the big meeting that is the one that the world watches it is where they come out with their five-year plan, all of their goals. Um, <clears throat> what's happened is they haven't had it. They were supposed to have it in 2024. They typically have it October, November, or December. So far, no, no one knows when it's going to be, which is a big change. However, the expectations are that when they do have it, uh, there will be more help coming from the fiscal side of the equation, as opposed to the monetary side, which is been seen as tinkering, trying to help the beleaguered, um, almost illiquid property developers. This is the whole, what's hold, one of the things that's holding them back, the debt that is mired in, that, in, that, um, in the property developers, which happens to be a large portion of the Chinese economy. Uh, the hope is also that perhaps they introduce, get this, a Western a Western style um, uh, um, way to 
alleviate the pain the way that we've done in the U.S., the way that other countries have also gotten rid of bad debt. You create the bad bank, or we call it the sick bank. And then you move all of that debt and you push it over so that you clean out the the the, the entity. And then you monetize what's in that bad bank. The, the goal, and this is, you know, I should point this out. No one is saying it's going to happen, but let me put it this way. The Chinese authorities know that this is a viable path towards cleaning this up, and they know they have to clean it up. That said, the hope is that they will come out with a significant fiscal package. By the way, that most likely it will be infrastructure spending of some sort, perhaps water treatment throughout the country that would require building. And of course, that is good for the industrial metals. Uh, remember, too, that they are leaders in um, EV, electric vehicles, and copper is used in that. Uh, and, you know, they're going to push that production. One thing I just want to add about what the expectations for China, and when you mentioned the early uh, part of the century where commodity prices just went through the roof, most likely this stage for China is where they want to move up the scale, up the value-added scale which is very normal for countries that are emerging from the emerging market status where it's double digit growth. They want uh, high technology. They want uh, manufacturing that is much, much more suited for a, um, a, a you know technological uh, infrastructure, high end. And that kind of growth is not double digit. That's usually even below 5%. Most people expect that is what we should see from China. But in terms of commodities, you know, they probably will have a an announcement that could put, push commodity prices uh, higher. They're not they're not deviating from their goal to be the world leader in EV. Yeah, EV sales been cooling Damn. a bit in the U.S., so it's really more yeah. China, I think, that's driving this um, this copper move. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, the LPR Research House view is, is you know, neutral on industrial metals, neutral precious metals. And, well, uh, look at gold. And overweight. Yeah. Um, gold's had a nice run. Um, we sold into strength, I guess you could say. And then um, right now, energy is our preferred commodity. So we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, I think oil has nice upside here, at least in the in the short term. So um, let's let's conclude here with some geopolitical topics, Quincy. Um, you you certainly are are well versed on all of these. Uh, so what should investors be thinking about? You know, as twenty twenty four outlooks come out, and most forecasts are between I don't know forty eight hundred and fifty one hundred on the S and P. That's what I've seen. Anyway, we're kind of right in the middle of that. Uh, you know, we all know inflation's a risk and rising rates are a risk that we can't totally dismiss. But how about the geopolitical risks? What what do you think could, um, you know, potentially uh, derail us next year? Well, I mean, you know, you're going to probably have an issue with Taiwan. Um, let me put it this way. You know, President Xi is going to have Taiwan join Beijing. I mean, it's one China, and they're not going to deviate from that. The question is, how do they how do they deliver that? And if they can't deliver it by having pro Beijing officials in place to make it easier, they're going to go in and they're going to do whatever they need to do to get them to capitulate. Um, the question has always been, 
not if, but when would they do it? And and some of the analysts in the U.S. have said like later, latter part of 2025 or even 2027. By the way, most have now pushed it closer. And the view is this. If you wanted to do something like that, you've got an, an economy that is slowing, that's sluggish. Consumer spending is down. Consumer confidence is down in China. What what about your adversary, your main adversary, the U.S.? Well, why didn't you ask that question? The U.S. is focused on the Middle East, focused on you know Putin and um, and um, Ukraine, and you have a a um, political season coming up. That happens to be a very good time to do what you want to do. The question is, will they? The other question about it, I want to add this angle to it. And that is that there has been a tremendous amount of purges in China, uh, particularly in the military, the foreign uh, affairs community in China, uh, in the economic sphere in China, purges across the board. And it suggests that um, President Xi Jinping is becoming more and more paranoid. Very often, mistakes are made. And that's the worry about perhaps it happens sooner rather than later. That's the case that's being made. Because once a leader becomes paranoid, if in fact that's what he is, uh, they, they tend to they tend to they tend to go deeper and deeper and try to try to try to show the world they're not paranoid and make mistakes. So I'm just throwing that out there. That's that is a concern about Taiwan. And and the other aspect to it, by the way, is there is an expectation that our allies are not going to join the U.S. in any material way regarding um, regarding Taiwan. In other words, if it's a military conflict, the expectations are they do not want to destroy their relationship with, with China. Sanctions work, but only up to a point. China is much more uh, independent, if you will, uh, if for, if for their economy to to function, they have they have you know commodities, they've got minerals, and they have a very big, a very large workforce. So that is a concern. The other concern is the Middle East. This is a concern, and the Middle East is not going away. And you can see this constant pushing, pushing, pushing on the United States. The question again is: Does the U.S. turn this into a larger conflict? Obviously, they don't want to. Obviously, Biden does not want to. But it may reach the point where by not doing anything, they actually invite more more trouble, more conflict. Um, then the last one has to do with Israel and Hamas. Uh, the Biden administration is being pushed in both directions. For the election, uh, you know, Michigan is extremely important. Uh, it, you know, many have said, well, he's he's lost Michigan. Uh, the other issue is, you know, how far Israel is going to go. The president has been pushing to have Israel basically wind things up. There's an old saying uh, in the military is that when you are going after your adversary, what you don't want is a soft surgeon. You don't want a surgeon who is going to go easy on you. And that is the other side of this equation as to whether or not the Israelis just give up now or do they go the extra extra miles, almost literally, to um, reach their goals. Yeah, they're, they're saying that they've entered a new phase. Or I think that's those that's their words. 
as well as Biden's words, a new phase that's maybe going to be more uh, surgical. But um, they're certainly not going to, um, you know, respond to calls for a ceasefire until they're ready. <laughs> and even when they're ready, it's not going to be a ceasefire. It's going to be more of a uh, targeted uh, search yeah. for uh, terrorists. And um, that that's going to take them outside of Gaza, uh, certainly. So, yeah, and I agree. You, you can't um, totally dismiss the Middle East. I mean, history tells you, and we've showed this before on this podcast, that the stock market tends to look past these types of events. Of course, yeah. You know, as long as you're not in recession, right? As long as it's not a major financial crisis, and right now we're, we're not experiencing either of those things, uh, then the stock market should withstand um, a lot of turmoil in, in the oh. Middle East. But when you take oil prices higher, when you um, when you have uh, the U.S. and Iran potentially, we hope not, but engaged, right, with one another, then that that that's a whole different uh, story. Because then you could potentially see $100 oil, which obviously has economic impact um, and involve the U.S. military. That That's a, you know, we're a long way from that. We hope we never get there, but uh, that's certainly more of an economic event. So economy is in good shape. The fundamentals of corporate America are in good shape. The cause of this soft patch, malaise, whatever you want to call what happened in 2021, is largely gone, right? We don't really have a major inflation problem. Unfortunately, we're at higher prices. Sure, you're growing modestly off of, you know, compared to the price increases of the last couple of years, but we still are at higher price levels. <laughs> so inflation, you know, is maybe from the Fed's perspective, the, the bottle is largely won, uh, but we're still paying more uh, for goods, a lot more, frankly, than we were paying a few years ago. And so uh, yeah. That the threat of putting higher oil prices on top of that, although they've been going the other direction lately, prices at the pump are, you know, two dollars and change in a lot of places. Uh, but there's still that risk out there that we have to monitor. So we'll just keep monitoring all of this. Russia, Ukraine, we have to monitor too. Uh, again, it's the same situation in the sense that uh, if it remains contained, it's unlikely to affect the U.S. economy, right? And that's or corporate profits. Um, and, uh, and, and in that event, if it's contained, you're probably going to see stocks continue to go higher, uh, and, um, and rates, uh, stay where they are. So still a pretty good backdrop, uh, but some, some risks we have to watch. So, um, not the most upbeat way to end, uh, Quincy. So let's talk about the week ahead real quick and then we'll end, <laughs> right? Which is, this is a more positive message. We get, we'll get more good inflation data, the core PCE, you know, the people that, track um, the individual components of this and take the CPI and convert it into PCE are saying it's going to be up like, uh, you know, 0.13 month over month on the core or something like that, right? So I think there's a little bit of downside to consensus expectations and the PCE data, the Fed's preferred inflation measure will continue to support uh, the Fed pivot. Um, I also highlighted sentiment. You mentioned Quincy a couple of times, you know, consumer confidence, uh, you know, I guess with regard to China, but consumer confidence really does matter. It, it's important for consumer spending, especially during the holidays. Uh, so I just flagged that. And then um, the University of Michigan Consumer uh, Inflation Expectations uh, Survey, I think it's really interesting. That's gone, moved all over the place. But the last tick was down a lot. <laughs> so a lot. 
right? We went basically from four to three in one reading, and now hopefully we'll we'll stay where we are or or go lower. So I think that'll be important to watch. And, and then housing data too. Anything, Quincy, that you anything else you'd highlight here um, before we end? Well, I want to mention uh, that we're going to have the um, Philadelphia uh, manufacturing report come out. And I only mention this because it has a very strong positive correlation with the manufacturing heartland in the U.S. And the reason I mention it is that the consensus estimates, while down in negative territory, bottoming and bottoming markedly. Remember one thing about the market uh, and investors, uh, they like to see um, less bad news. So if it's less bad news, that's very good news. Uh, it may not sound scientific, but folks watch to see if bad news sort of eases up. And that's what we're looking for in that Philadelphia Fed um, survey that comes out this week. That would be important. Maybe it has to do with the United Auto Workers strike over and um, orders coming in, but uh, it'll be important. Manufacturing is what? What is it? About 10, 11 percent of our economy. But it is important and we want to see it start to make that turn. We'll be looking for new orders. We'll be looking for hiring expectations and prices paid. Absolutely. And then the BOJ this week, uh, there's been a lot oh. of speculation that they're going to, you know, at least hint at tightening, probably not tighten. Uh, so we'll have to watch that. They come out with their announcement tomorrow, Tuesday. Uh, so you'll know what they said by the time you uh, you listen to this. So uh, probably not going to be any surprises because the market's been anticipating this uh, for quite some time. But the the BOJ officials have, have essentially telegraphed that they're not going to make the move at this meeting. Is that fair, Quincy? Well... <laughs> They were a little bit vague, you know. They try, yeah. they do try to. Um, they go after the, he the the hedge funds. I mean, they are constantly being attacked. Their yen, for example, uh, is constantly under under attack, not by the hoodies, but by the hedge funds. And uh, they they try very hard to um, to circumvent that, and that's why they don't want to give it away. The one thing I do want to say about when they make the decision. Maybe it'll be that they that they move yield curve control a little bit more, right? Lift it a little bit more and not pull the Band-Aid off. But they want to do it when global markets are fairly sound. And I think, you know, at least the biggest market, the United States, it is in good shape. No doubt. That might be uh, that might mean it's a good time. But uh, I mean, some people talk about how the BOJ surprises, but I think raising rates uh, tomorrow would be too much of a surprise. So, Oh, I'll, not raising rates, just the yield curve. Uh, right, just the yield curve mandated. control range. But even yeah. that, they already, they already basically it a little bit. guided to higher range. So I don't think that range is going up either. Uh, we'll see. But the yen is rallying in anticipation. Uh, so uh, yeah, yes. That'll be important to watch uh, this week because higher rates in Japan do translate into higher rates. Uh, in the U.S. So mm -hmm. um, we'll end on that note. So thanks, Quincy, for joining. Thanks, everybody, for joining uh, as well for another LPL Market Signals. Um, we're going to be off next week for Christmas holiday, but we will be back with you. Uh, I guess this is, our last, this is our last one of the year, right? We will be back with it you is. after New yeah. Year. So I wish everybody a joyous holiday season, uh, safe, happy, healthy holiday, and we'll uh, we'll see you next year. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you.
This material was provided by LPL Financial, is for general information only, and is not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. There is no assurance that the views or strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Any economic forecasts set forth in the podcast may not develop as predicted and are subject to change. References to markets, asset classes, and sectors are generally regarding the corresponding market index. All indexes are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Index performance is not indicative of the performance of any investment. All performance reference is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and broker-dealer, member FINRA and SIPC insurance products are offered through LPL or its licensed affiliates. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered investment advisor that is not an LPL affiliate, please note LPL makes no representation with respect to such entity. If your financial professional is located at a bank or credit union, please note that the bank or credit union is not registered as a broker-dealer or investment advisor. These products and services are being offered through LPL or its affiliates, which are separate entities from and not affiliates of the bank or credit union. Securities insurance offered through LPL or its affiliates are not insured by the FDIC or NCUA or any government agency, not bank or credit union guaranteed, not bank or credit union deposit or obligations, and may lose value.